0: Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking about how technology affects our mental health. For this, I've got a special guest, Dr. Larry Rosen. Larry is a psychologist and an international expert in the psychology of technology. He's been giving many keynote speeches for a number of Fortune 500 companies. He's written several books, including The Distracted Mind, Eye Disorder, and Rewired. He initially got into the science of how technology affects our mental health when he was investigating computer phobia if, uh, many years ago and how we were scared to initially adopt uh, technology. So, Larry, uh, to keep things simple, did I miss anything in my introduction to you?
1: No, it's kind of funny to think back to, all the way back to computer phobia when people – we're scared of computers now
0: I mean now everybody carries one in their pocket for sure so let's maybe keep things simple I'm often on the tube or on the train and I often see people randomly scrolling on their phones on public transport and I'm quite nosy and sometimes I see people just scrolling and randomly clicking things with no real goal in sight like could you talk to me a little bit about the psychology of what's going on when people open their phone with no real reason? Sometimes even people tell me, oh, I just opened my phone and I don't even know why.
1: You know, it's funny. Um, we've, we've tried to model what goes on with people and why they tend to just do that. Why they tend to just, inst- as soon as they're minimally distracted by nothing, they tend to do something. It turns out boredom plays a big role. And we don't allow ourselves to be bored anymore. Um, When you're bored, your mind wanders. You get clever, creative thoughts sometimes. um, And you just, your mind gets calm and relaxed. Um, We don't allow ourselves to do that anymore. We have 45 seconds at a stoplight. We grab our phone and immediately tap whatever we can do in 45 seconds. And then, of course, if you're behind that person, as soon as the light turns and you're ready to go, you have to honk at them because they're not paying attention. They're looking down. Um, and in fact, if if you wander around the world now, and it doesn't matter where it is, whether it's the States, whether it's Europe, whether it's Asia, what you see is a lot of this, head down, looking at a phone. Um, and the, I've, I've, been I've been following this since the mid-1980s, but the last uh, eight to 10 years, um, we've seen this dramatic change in distraction, and um, it's due to a lot of things, but boredom plays a big role
0: so how could we get embrace boredom and get feel more at ease with being bored and have nothing to do?
1: Um, I think that's going to take a lot of work unfortunately um, as soon as Um, some critical things happen, including, um, smartphones coming out and becoming ubiquitous and social media becoming ubiquitous. We have these thoughts in our head all the time that we have to check in. Because if we don't check in, then we might be missing something important. And in fact, um, in in some of the research that that we've done. We find that people, whereas maybe three, four years ago, they were checking in 50 times a day, which is a lot, by the way, which is a lot, Um, now that number is well over 100 times a day. You can imagine 100 times a day, even if you have five minutes separating it, that's a lot of time. And also they're getting about 100 plus notifications a day, which means they're constantly being distracted by beeps and buzzes and vibrations and whatever. And that's really kind of an interesting signal to the brain, which says, ooh, I better check in now because something important might be happening and I don't want to miss out. That's where FOMO came from, fear of missing out. It's people were concerned about, oh my God, if I don't check in with with whatever I'm on TikTok or, or whatever, it doesn't matter, um, then I might miss something and I might never see it because of this infinite scroll. And as people add more things and we scroll down and keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, we sometimes miss important things that never get taken to the top.
0: So it's the fact that we have all this unlimited information which we will never be able to finish, which just keeps us addicted.
1: And I think that there's two things in in what you just said, there's addiction which is a certain part of brain chemistry. But there's also obsession, which is a totally different part of brain chemistry. And I think that that's, in general, what's working most of the time, that we get on our phones, we'll check out whatever, we get off, and then all of a sudden, these chemicals in our brain are starting to leak in, basically reminding us that we we need to get back because we're starting to feel anxious. And as soon as we start to feel anxious, then we our only recourse is to pick up the phone to reduce that anxiety. And so then all those chemicals get reabsorbed, and we go through this cycle again and again and again. And the the phone itself is very, very powerful. It has way more meaning than just being a phone. First of all, it's not a phone. And using it as a phone is one of the the least often activities on the smartphone should be called a smart pocket computer or something, although that's kind of a long term. One of the things that, that uh, my colleague, Dr. Nancy Cheever has done is she has brought people into our lab and had them sit down in front of a computer a desktop and stick their phone to the right on the desk. And then we hook them up to two little devices. One measures galvanic skin response, which is arousal. And one measures heart rate, which can also be arousal, but it's a little more complicated. And so we turn on the computer, we start the program, and we tell them that they're going to be watching something, and they're going to be tested on it afterwards. Then about 30 seconds in, Dr. Cheever says, oh, wait, 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 we have to stop for a second. Um, Your phone there is interfering with our technology. So I'm just going to take your phone and put it back here on this little table back here. And then Dr. Cheever starts texting the person. And in the simplest experiment, she texted them four times. And every time that galvanic skin response went up and down and up and down, which means every time that notification came in, every time you got a notification, what you got was an arousal, an immediate arousal. Well, that's anxiety. And that's how anxiety works. A little, mm. It's a little frightening, I think, in the in the long run. I think that it's it, what it means is is that we are constantly on the alert, and then it's not a surprise to me, by the way, that what we are seeing, particularly among young people, teenagers, young adults, that the primary mental health issue is anxiety based, and. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, 31.1% of teenagers will have some sort of an anxiety um, episode um, during their teen years. That's a lot. That's a lot That's almost a third of teenagers. And you can see this. I mean if you go into any school, say high school, um, and you just watch people between kids between classes um, as they're walking, they always have their phones out. Phones are never away. Unless they're required to put them away, and that means that they're sitting there constantly being anxious and being, and really t- can turn into what what people might know as OCD, obsessive compulsive behavior, um, where they they almost feel like they're they're being compelled to look at their phone, and notifications play a big role in that. I mean, you could if you cut out all your notifications, it helps a bit, but not much. That's part of the problem. You cut it all your notifications, then instead of waiting for the external notification, you're generating an internal one that is starting to make you more anxious, just like an external one would do. And, and research has shown that about 50% of the notifications you get come from outside, and 50% come from inside your head.
0: That's a little frightening, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. So, so I'm a little bit desensitized because I personally, I keep my phone on airplane mode when I don't need to use my phone. So, but I still occasionally get a little bit of the feeling in my head, like, ah, maybe you're getting some notifications on your phone. (laughs) Well, and, and once that, once that starts,
1: once that, that starts to progress, you will find that it will probably get worse because that those chemicals just got, build up and build up and build up and you have no recourse if you don't check in they're going to continue to build up and continue to drive you crazy literally
0: mm. but something which personally gives me more anxiety right now is multitasking and in your book you talked about the multitasking mania and i feel, i get super anxious when i've got multiple tabs and i'm switching being, between tasks so does multitasking actually exists can we as humans multitask so the easy answer is yes and no
1: yes we can multitask, <laughs> but in order to do that um w- at least one of the tasks has to be either automatic or require very little brain power um, for example we can walk and talk to somebody on the phone talking to somebody on the phone takes quite a bit of brain power because we're always trying to fill in the gaps of what they're saying and interpret what they're saying, walking is automatic. We can do that easily. Can we watch uh, something on the screen and then read the scroll underneath it at the same time, which is really prevalent now for, for news media? Can we do that? No, not effectively. We can't at all because they both require your brain, both require quite a bit of your brain. So yes, we can multitask, but the tasks that we use to multitask are, um, are those exact tasks that are going to make it difficult for you to multitask? Um, there are a few. There are about two percent of the people we call super taskers, and they can multitask. Um, I find it very difficult to pay attention to two cognitive streams at the same time, and yet my wife is able to to be on a word game or something and watch TV um, or watch the news or whatever we're watching. But I do find that she often will say what they say, what they say, because again, she's not fully multitasking. You can't kind of split your attention in half and go, well, let's pay attention over there. Let's pay attention over there. It doesn't really work
0: i'm exactly like this when i'm doing something i i always tell people please do not talk to me when i'm doing something because i'll end up saying what what are you saying because i cannot focus on one task and listen unfortunately
1: well that's our reality and the sad part is that we try to multitask way too much and and that's we can't help that we honestly can't help that because there's so many streams of information coming in and so many tasks in our life that require brain power Require cognitive resources that there's. It's just very difficult to do that and feel like you're effective. Mm. How much can you pay attention if you watch thirty seconds of something on the screen and then go back to your work? Well, do you remember where you were in your work? Probably not. You have to kind of go boot, reboot yourself, go back. Um, if you say you're reading, you're you're a teenager reading a textbook, for example, and you get distracted and you go and text somebody and and a couple, you know, a couple things, and then you come back to your your book that you're reading, um, you're going to have to flip back a few pages to figure out how you got there, because as you're reading, you build up these mental structures that that kind of gather the information and attach it to other information, and makes a nice little sort of uh, a grouping of neurons in there, Um, although the neurons are all spread over, but and the as-if model of neurons kind of in one spot. So imagine your neurons are right here all together for what you're reading in the book, but now you distract yourself, so maybe they go over here to a different spot. And as they do that, all of the chemicals that the brain needs to keep your neurons active, like glucose and oxygen, for example, are going from here to here. And so these start to fade and so you come back to this and maybe there's not much left there and so you have to redo it which means that if you're trying to do two tasks it will always take you longer than if you did one and then stopped and did the second when you were done with the first just a fact
0: and you talk about this in the distracted mind like we don't actually know how much time we are losing from all of this task switching Like we think in our minds, it's just a few seconds, but these seconds add up over time. Sure. They they have to.
1: And in fact, our brain responds pretty quickly. If we try to distract ourselves to something else, our brain shoves oxygen um, and glucose through the bloodstream right over there. So it can pay attention to that. Um, That means there's not, not much left for anything else. And, and also the sad thing for, well, for at least for younger people up to mid-30s, is that the part of the brain that that monitors the multitasking is all coming from up here in the prefrontal cortex. And mm. the prefrontal cortex is just a, a whole complicated set of neurons that usually communicate either electrically or uh, chemically. Um, and part of the problem becomes... That if this part of the brain doesn't really get completed, meaning it does, the neurons don't get coded with something that makes them work better, um, until you're in your late 20s, early 30s sometimes. And so it's kind of like you're trying to multitask with a only half a deck.
0: So what recommendations would you give to someone who is working, for example, because like I can be distracted by if I'm writing a, a report and then I'll get an email come in or a message, I'll see the notification and I'll come back and I'll be like, what was I doing? I cannot remember anymore. Yeah, you're very typical. So
1: so wh- one of the things that I think you have to do is retrain your brain. I mean, we've, we've spent years now training our brain to be distracted and we have done a very good job of that. Now we need our brain to to learn how to focus and attend. And one of the easiest things is something I'll call tech breaks, which is imagine that you are working on a report and you don't wanna be distracted. So the, the point of the tech break is to teach you how to keep your focus and attention for longer and longer time. So what I would always recommend to somebody is they look at everything on their screen. Um, if they have, if they're using a computer, that they close, not minimize, but close all of the the uh, tabs that are open, um, because otherwise they're going to be distracted. On their phone, they flick away all the the apps that they, except the ones they absolutely have to use, because they'll be distracted. Then they turn the they set their time the phone timer for fifteen minutes. Turn it upside down, put it right in front of them as a stimulus to their brain, saying. You're gonna to get to this in about 15 minutes. So because it's on silent, they aren't gonna get all those notifications and stuff. And because they're trying to learn to focus, they eventually can get to the 15 minutes without feeling too poorly. When they get they know they're at the 15 minutes, when the alarm goes off for 15 minutes, they say in their head, wait a minute, wait a minute, I want to finish reading this page, or I want to finish writing this paragraph, or whatever that happens to be. Then you turn the phone over, set it for a minute, check anything else you want that's irrelevant to what you're doing, reset it for 15 minutes, turn it upside down, and go through the cycle of 15 minutes, one minute, 15 minutes, one minute. When you get the 15 minutes part down and you feel like you're, you're good at that now, then you set it to 20 and then 25 and 30. And in, in my thinking, if we as human beings can focus for 30 minutes, without distraction, we're doing damn well. Um, It's very difficult. Once you get over the 15 minute part, you realize how how much you've been distracted in the past because your brain is just screaming at you going, I got it, I got it. Oh, wait, I can't look at that phone, it's upside down. I got it, but I got it. Your brain really is like yelling at you all the time. (laughs) It's why, by the way, our mental health suffers all this. Because you can't have those anxiety chemicals floating around all over your brain. You just can't. It's, it's not effective. It's like there's people watching the uh, the screen and having their phone in the back beep at them. It's like, oh, anxious.
0: <sighs> <laughs> so overall, it's better for someone just to take a few minutes to just properly organize their workspace close down anything rather than jumping straight into the task of all these distractions present. So get rid of them first, then you can begin the work and you'll be more effective. Right. And the other part of it, by the way, is
1: the tasks that you're doing are commanding your cognitive resources. That's something that we talked about a lot in the book. That's one of Adam's specialties. Your cognitive resources are being used for an activity. And what you have to decide is how to best utilize those resources. So one of the things I tell people is once you get down to this 15, 20-minute, 25-minute, whatever, and you're pretty comfortable, then make sure that when you're working on a task that you find a good stopping point, a place that is an ending, like the end of a chapter, uh, the end of a discussion, um, the end of a formula in a math book, whatever it is, that you give yourself good breaking points there. So you don't have to go back and re-up as much. You knew where you ended. I, I, I read a lot of fiction, and I, I um, realize that sometimes, because of other considerations, I just have to stop reading wherever I am. And more than that, most times I can stop at the end of a chapter. I find if I don't stop at the end of the chapter, I have to go back and flip back. In fact, I just did that before I was waiting for you. I just flip back four or five pages to again, remember what was going on. When I'm at the end of a chapter, it's usually much easier. I can kind of get a feeling from the end of the chapter what went on. Um, it's, it's it's very... Um, we're just starting, I think, in in this era, in the last half a decade or more, to start to understand what our brain is doing to us and how powerful that is. Uh, um, and as we get better and better tools, and Adam is the, my co-author, Adam Ghazali is just really great at that. I mean, he's got all of these fantastic tools that he can use to look at how people are processing information. And one of his studies, by the way, he took people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and he gave them a multitasking task. And then after. Oh, shoot, I hate
0: phone calls. I honest to goodness hate phone calls um you're talking about the multitasking task don't just, let the phone distract you but
1: that's interesting because i just got so distracted i forgot what i was saying
0: it happens <sighs> so, so you're talking about adam Ghazali and the you gave he gave them a multitasking task
1: thank you for reminding me where i was so he gave them multitasking 20s 30s 40s 50s 60s 70s then he took the 60s and 70 year olds um, and gave them a little program that would help them learn to multitask. Um, it was just a, a race car called NeuroRacer. It was a race car going up over an, a mountains and, and going like this and changing speed. And you had to keep that car in the middle of the road at the right speed. And then every once in a while, a little sign will come up with like a red X. And your job was to push a button when you saw a green circle. So you you, the red X comes up and your brain has to go, oh, is that a green circle? No. So you're, you're required to multitask. They played with it for, I think, two and a half hours over a week or so. And when they came back in the lab, they had already scanned their brains, and they re-scanned their brains, and they gave them the test again, mm-hmm. and they were multitasking as well as the 20- and 30-year-olds. And when you looked at the prefrontal cortex, which is where they scan, it had richer connections. That's just like a couple a couple hours of playing with this. And the and what that has evolved into, which is very exciting, is Adam Ghazali and his and his team have created the first video game treatment for ADHD. What that means is, I mean, ADHD is attention deficit hyperactive disorder, which means you you're really bad at attending. To things sometimes you're really good at attending and you can't you can focus on video games
0: Okay, sorry, we had a brief uh, interruption there, so you, you were talking about Adam Ghazali and his multitasking experiment uh, on people with ADHD, and you were just in the process of explaining what is ADHD.
1: So we, we, I think pretty much everybody knows that ADHD is attention deficit hyperactive as <laughs> well. And what that means is, is that um, that people who have ADHD or ADD, they're, they're really similar, um, can't pay attention, basically. And so based on his neural racer study, we had them doing, running a car through there. He he has a company, and they, they made this beautiful interface uh, with, I think it's in the fjords in Norway or something, and you're riding a boat through there and weaving in and out weaving in and out. Periodically, you see those signs, you have to click a button. Um, that was um, tested, and double-tested, and double-blind tested, and it's now the first video game that is a a, a certified uh, treatment for ADHD, which is pretty amazing. I mean, treatments for anything are usually are always um, chemical, right? You give you a pill, pop the pill, you'll feel better, or something happens. This video game, Takes, takes the place of that. It actually helps your brain develop better. Fascinating. Okay. And, and I, I know Adam is so did I on, understand, yeah. Adam is working now on other kinds of things like traumatic brain injury and trying to develop, again, electronic tools based around video games, which we all kind of get, in order to help
0: somebody with a traumatic brain injury, for example, and other, other issues. So, so did I understand correctly that the, the aim of the video game is ultimately a multitasking experiment? It is exactly a multitasking experiment. That's
1: exactly right. You're, you're steering this boat through the fjords, always watching for that sign of the X or the O or whatever, the X or the circle or whatever you're looking for. So you're, you're really literally kind of staring ahead, but maneuvering the boat and it's, it's I've done it. Um, it's, it's really quite intense. And as you get better at it, it ups the ante. So it makes it more difficult. So it reacts to you. So as you go, oh, okay, I can handle those. Ah, all of a sudden now it's harder. And then it's more difficult and more difficult until they reach your plateau at the top. Mm. And it's, it, all the research shows that it's incredibly effective at helping people regain their attention when they have
0: an attention disorder. So you, uh, you've said that it is actually possible to multitask. And something else I heard Adam Ghazali talk about is that occasionally when we put two, the, these two types of multitasking, so the sort of automatic task with something, uh, well, two automatic tasks together, occasionally it can be dangerous, for example, if you're driving a car, and I don't know, you're listening to the radio. It's when there's a sudden change in these circumstances. For example, I don't know, someone steps out on the road, and you overestimate your ability to multitask, where well, this can be dangerous. Absolutely, and and you see it pretty often.
1: Um, particularly, people who uh, a lot of people like to listen to books on on tape or audio books when they're driving. Um, if you can imagine what happens. Their, their brain's supposed to be driving, right? You've got all these cars out there and all this traffic or whatever. In the meantime, your brain's getting this input through your ears that is talking to you about things that you have no context for. And so you have to build up the context in your brain, which takes a lot of power and a lot of power from the prefrontal cortex again. And so even when you do an automatic task like driving and a cognitive task like listening you you aren't really splitting your attention it's almost like you're driving from memory it's like your brain is driving but you're really not it's like that person may walk out on the road and you might not even see him
0: mm. because,
1: and your your brain is busy with this with this audible tape that you're listening to and it can't then switch quickly because it's too busy and so Um, it's interesting because the research also shows that you can do it better if you're talking to somebody sitting next to you in in the car. And the reason is, is that as soon as your brain goes, oh, there's a person there, you shut that person up. You just stop listening to them, And you already know their context. You're not building up a context. They're right there. That's their context. They're sitting next to you. So you don't really have to expend as much cognitive effort. And as long as you can turn it off when you see a problem, that works.
0: Mm. So would you say it's a good public health strategy to ban uh, listening to music if you're driving a car?
1: No, because music takes, okay, that's a good point. Music takes less cognitive effort. Um, When you listen to music in a car, oftentimes, well, almost always, you're listening to music that you're familiar with. Um, And really, the more familiar you are with, with music, the better that part part in your brain that knows that song or knows that music can handle it with much fewer cognitive resources. So for example, if you put on uh, one of my favorite songs, Hotel California by the Eagles, if you put on Hotel (laughs) California um, and it's in your car, uh, it doesn't take much. I mean, I can find myself, my mind wandering, but I'm still humming the song inside my head because it's so almost automatic now. I've listened to it so many times, it's almost automatic. So one of, the, one of the suggestions, actually, for helping your multitasking and particularly helping you go to sleep because we try to multitask at night and go to sleep is to make a playlist of songs that you know really well and, and put that on while you're trying to go to sleep because it doesn't take much resources and it leaves your brain free to kind of drift into sleep interesting mm. most people say don't distract yourself with music at night no it might work better as long as i tell people as long as the song is something that you can hum in your sleep that's mm. literally what we're going to
0: have to do something i find very useful when i'm studying is just to listen to the same song on repeat for like one hour <laughs> Perfect. yeah a
1: lot of people say well you should listen to classical music because it has no words and because it's more mellow not true like you said, listen to something that is so familiar that it's easy to grasp. It's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating.
0: Perfect. So recommendation, listen to a song you're familiar with rather than an audio book when you're driving the car. Right. Exactly.
1: Or if you're driving the car and it's in, in an area where you don't normally sense problems. I mean, if you're driving on the freeway, for example, and you're just staying in the same lane, you probably need less resources, except you need to watch out for people on your side. But now we have things that beep in our cars that tell us there's somebody to the right and somebody to the left. And, um, so you could then listen to an audiobook because it's easier. The, the driving becomes more automatic and takes less resources. The key is cognitive resources. We only have a limited amount. I mean, our brain is only so big. Um, that's all, all the resources we have. Uh, And we have to expend them. If we have to expend them doing two tasks at the same time, um, we often create a problem in our brain switching back and forth.
0: Mm. Okay, perfect. And let's move on to more social occasions now. Uh, Something else which I find really, really uh, annoying with technology is when I'm having dinner or yeah, at a restaurant with my friends and everyone's got their their phones out and uh, they keep on checking their phones. And sometimes I feel like they prioritize their online uh, co- connections rather than their offline connections. So you've talked about this in your book also, I uh, yeah, eye disorder. So what can I do when I'm with my friends? Because I don't want to seem rude and say, oh, sorry, can you take your, your phone out? Sometimes we play a game where I say everyone takes their phone, and the last one to check their phone, uh, or te- we pile them up, and we say the last one to take their phone is the 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 winner. Well, do you have any recommendations? The to take your phone. Should pay all the bills for dinner.
1: <laughs> that should be your penalty. Well, if you remember, we talked about the tech breaks there, right? You could do a tech break when you're with your friends. You say, okay, look, let's just put our phones in here, and we'll set an alarm for. 30 minutes or 20 minutes or 15 or whatever we decide. And then we all get to look at our phone for a minute. Yeah, one minute time, maybe two minutes time, depending upon what you want to do. And then we put our phones away again. Um, I know parents who do this at the dinner table, um, which is a place where you want to communicate with your kids. And and their teenagers, you know, playing a game and eating and playing a game. And my grandkids who are nine and 10 that two older ones do this all the time. They eat while they have their iPads there. Um, And there's no conversation. There's no no conversation between parents and kids. And so you do a tech break during dinner. You say, okay, kids, let's not play with it. In 15 minutes, you're going to get five minutes to play, and we'll time it. So you give them enough time, and you negotiate these times anyway. And I love negotiating with my grandkids. How much time do you think you should get right now? well, maybe 30 minutes and go, how about 15? And then we bargain and go back and forth until we arrive at a number, which then just means that there's now a set number that they, uh, amount of time that they get to play before they have to stop.
0: That's great, I think. Rather than completely taking technology out of the occasion, you still give a certain amount of time.
1: If you take it out of the occasion, then all that stuff inside your head is going crazy and starting <laughs> Drop those chemicals in your brain, like cortisol, for example, which makes you very antsy. Um, so you're stopping that basically. The kid knows. Mm. Oh yeah, I'll get to have my phone in 15 minutes.
0: So you're talking about all these things going crazy in your in your brain. What about people with like uh, learning difficulties? Uh, is technology overall good for them?
1: I think there's quite a bit of good technology for learning disorders right now. Um, a lot of it focuses on what, what different kinds of disorders I it mean, is. There's, there's, there's many different disorders uh, that can affect someone in their learning and particularly younger kids. Um, and there, the fact is there are great technologies out there to help because the technologies are adaptive. And so the, what I mean by adaptive is it starts very easy so if the kid has trouble focusing in class, for example, which is not uncommon in school, even even um, at a very young age, I think one of my grandkids was eight, and the teacher reported that he had trouble focusing in class. So it's not unusual. So for kids who have trouble focusing in class, what, you do, what they do is they give you an easy task, and they do it, and then they adapt it and make it harder and harder, just like that boat through the fjords, harder and harder and harder so that eventually you learn how to focus by going through this task. Um, and they have a lot of adaptive technology out there um, that is really good for kids. I remember a long time ago, um, and this was decades ago when I first saw this, um, they, they were working with, with people who were mentally challenged, and, but the people wanted, needed to write something. And so what they did is that people would tap a letter and then the possible choices that they might put there would be on the screen on the side. And they just tap that one and say, yeah, that's what I what I wanted. Or they do a second letter or a third letter or a fourth letter until they didn't have to type the whole thing. Well, that's just like our predictive testing texting right now, right? That's exactly what happens. I type and I, and I type TH and I look up and, tap this, so I don't really have to do the whole thing. That's adaptive, It's adapting to my skill level.
0: Very good, so it's making their life easier in a way. Yeah,
1: it should, it should, because that's difficult if you have some sort of um, disorder, a mental disorder or cognitive disorder, um, it's very frustrating, particularly for young kids. It's very frustrating. And it's frustrating for parents too, and teachers, so what you want to do is try to help them learn by, by technology.
0: Mm. So all of these things, which are saying, I guess it means that technology is here to stay and it's about us to try and realize the best ways to properly incorporate it into our lives. So you've talked about, uh, today and also in your book about the importance of resetting the brain through these tech breaks. In the last chapter of your book, I uh, I either saw that you talk about resetting your brain in in relation to things such as uh, laughing as well. So,
1: so one of the things that happens
0: is because
1: this technology is so engaging. um, And particularly things like video games or social media or anything that that takes your focus, takes it, puts it out there. your brain gets overloaded. And they did some research um, a long time ago on dreaming and found that that your sleep goes in cycles, about 90-minute cycles through the night. And at the end of each cycle, you have a dream, starting with little little dreams, short ones, and then the last one could be very long, which you often wake up in the middle of. Um, They also talked about The fact that our real life and our brain during the day gets overloaded like that the same way and maybe in 90-minute cycles so maybe 90 minutes is the max that we should focus on something and one of the recommendations like you said in the back of eye disorder one of the recommendations is that you find a way about every 90 minutes maybe every 60 to 90 depending upon how engaged you are with the technology to reset your brain. Now, if we had a little red button back here, I could push and reset my brain, that would be really easy, right? Just clean it out. Um, But that doesn't exist. But there's lots of things you can do that take very little time to kind of take a little break. Um, Walking out in nature has been shown to really calm your brain down. There's lots of research on that. Um, Taking a warm shower or bath actually calms your brain. Um, You don't really want to do that every 90 minutes because you look like a prune. um um, reading a joke book looking at art all those kind of things and you know that those are traditionally things that we call right brain even though they're not there's distinction is kind of fuzzy but you're doing right brain tasks to get yourself out of calming yourself from doing left brain tasks and so literally anything That calms you down. For example, for me, if I get really stressed, I grab a crossword puzzle. Now, that should be left brain, right? But but it engages me in a way that doesn't interfere. And everybody knows what tasks work for them. Taking a walk outside for a few minutes, um, anything, anything you can find, and then jump back in and just recognize that after about an hour to an hour and a half, you're going to need to do it again. It's kind of like Telling your brain. Uh oh. I think we froze. It froze on the Oh, there, there you are. You're back.
0: Perfect. So, uh, yeah, me and my grandma sometimes will put a stop clock on, and we'll literally just do this thing called laughing yoga, where we'll laugh for like one minute about nothing, just to to reset the mind.
1: That's that's fantastic. You know, you know, it works for you.
0: And My grandma's super good at laughing. I know you're, you're a grandfather yourself, so may, maybe this is something you can try with your grandkids one day.
1: Yeah, well, and, and what I do with the grandkids is one of them really likes football, so he brings a football, and we throw the football around a lot. That calms us down. Um, so it, it's, it's specific for different people, obviously. But, but the, whole, the whole thing says, look, technology overloads your brain. Just don't spend too much time
0: in big blocks. Mm. Helps kids a lot. So in this chapter, you also talk about uh, neuroplasticity and what is neuroplasticity? It's quite a difficult word, and where does it come into re- relation with resetting your brain?
1: You know, I don't like the term neuroplasticity because plastic always seems to me as solid, like a plastic drinking glass. But if you think about it, plastic is is often um, squishy a little bit, and so we always thought that the brain that you were born with a brain that stayed exactly that until you died it's not true we're continually um bringing in new neurons creating new connections and the connections are the important thing we're continually changing our brain literally changing our brain and that's the plasticity so our brain is changing all the time which is helpful to us but we can then adapt it to situations when we need to, so that's that's kind of the, the quick definition of neuroplasticity. So brain's just adapts. And a lot of it's biochemical, so we don't even notice it.
0: Mm. Because online, I hear lots of people saying you should meditate because it changes your brain. But everything train changes your brain, right? Even the fact that I'm speaking with you right now, I'm changing my brain. You are, you are, and.
1: Meditation is great. It's another one of the suggestions of how to calm your brain, reset your brain. Um, And and they they have these these programs for kindergarten kids who are like five, maybe six years old, where they get rambunctious after a little time. And so they actually have a, a meditation program for young people, the teacher's years, and it's like a four to five minute thing. So if the kids are all getting antsy, the teacher would say, okay, let's do our meditation now. And they do that. And then it calms everybody down. It's just, it's meditation is fascinating. Um, It it just literally takes your brain to a different spot.
0: Yeah. I've seen this becoming more and more uh, in the school curriculum, which I think is great.
1: Yeah, I do too. Anything you can do to get those kids to focus and attend, um, which is much more difficult now than it was when I was growing up. That's for sure.
0: Okay. Excellent. So I listened also to your last, uh, well, another one of the podcasts you were in, and you talked about how um, you were diagnosed with um, Parkinson's in 2019. And I think it's great that you're, you're so open to talk about this. I think you even write articles in the, is it Psychology Today magazine? Yeah, in their blog. They have a blog corner. And I've been writing a regular blog for them,
1: I don't know, for years and years. But I I don't write very many um, every once in a while. But I do, I have written about Parkinson's and I've written about my experiences with it. So the end of the first year I wrote about what kind of things I noticed going on in me in the first year changes. Um, The second year I wrote again and then I wrote one sort of a little bit later to talk about, because Parkinson's is a very odd disease. Everybody has their own symptoms. The major symptom is is tremors, um, which I don't have because I've medicated very nicely. Thank you. Um, But there are other kinds of problems that people don't associate with Parkinson's. I mean, for example, Parkinson's patients will often act out their dreams. They just do. I mean, it's weird, and I've done that. Um, um, Luckily, I've not hurt my wife because she says, I'll wake up, I'll act like I'm awake, and I'll be punching somebody or hitting something or yelling or screaming or whatever. Um, but that's that's another one of those odd Parkinson's problems, symptoms, uh, whatever. Um, and I think it's my role in all this is I'm a scientist. And so kind of like I look at the world with like my scientist on one shoulder and me on the other. Um, and I kind of try to vary what I do with it. So as a scientist, I want to report what goes on with my Parkinson's and see if it can help anybody. As me, I want to report my emotions and my feelings about it. So it's not just what happens, it's how I feel about it. And I've tried to do that. I, I you know, I mentor some people with Parkinson's disease, um, which is very gratifying. Um, it It's just part of what happens to me, and I've always been very open about my life, very open happy to tell anybody
0: anything about it i think that's great and uh pa- parkinson's for me is quite very interesting because in your last podcast uh, uh you talked about how it can even affect things such as smell how it's related to dopamine how everyone's symptoms are so different that it can just be even confused with just typical symptoms you have as you get uh, get older absolutely um it's interesting,
1: a major precursor for Parkinson's is losing your sense of, of smell. And often that will come years before you actually are diagnosed with Parkinson's. I lost my sense of smell in most of it um, uh, years before I was diagnosed with Parkinson's, um, which is fascinating to me. And then there's just uh, there's just other symptomology that just happens out there. Um, it, it never affects everybody the same way. It's always mm. different. And it's personal, yet it doesn't have to be. It can be more uh, interactive about it. And that's, I mean, when when people think about Parkinson's, the first thing they think about is Michael J. Fox, who uh, has Parkinson's, had it for 20-some odd years, maybe 30 years now. I mean, he was really famous for movies before that. And, And he's got it bad in the sense that his tremors are not under control. And if you've seen him lately, he goes on TV, he does talk shows, he, play, he was in several uh, situation comedies, um, and Parkinson's is part of him now. And he has this great foundation that is doing, funding tons of research on Parkinson's, and hopefully at some point they'll come up with better treatments for it. Um, and they're already coming up with treatments. that They've discovered that if you stimulate your prefrontal cortex in a certain way, you can reduce the symptomology of your Parkinson's, particularly the tremors. And all it takes is a nine-volt battery. Mm. Pretty interesting. You run this little low nine-volt battery uh, signal through through particular parts of your brain, or you can even go as far as having that kind of thing implanted in your brain. Um, So science is catching up a little bit here. Mm. I'm hopeful, at least for the next generations to come that it won't be um, as prevalent.
0: Mm. So so my mom, she sometimes gets worried like for my dad or for my grandma, because occasionally they have trouble with names, for example. But from what I understand, the main symptom of Parkinson's is not memory, it's more to do with motor. So like falling down, is that correct? So it's to do with how dopamine impacts your motor cortex is this right it's funny
1: we always think of dopamine as um video with video games i mean that's they're intertwined so much um we think of dopamine really as just a function of video games and wanting you to play more um when they can they have these technologies now that can tell exactly how much dopamine you have in your brain and um Dopamine does a couple of things. One, it's our, our, they call it the pleasure chemical. Um, We strive to do things to get a little shot of dopamine in our head. It also controls our motor movements. And um, Parkinson's patients traditionally have, almost always, have a dopamine problem, meaning they have too little dopamine. And so the main drug that's been around for a long time is called L-DOPA, which is designed to try to get more dopamine in your brain. Uh, That's the drug they start everybody with from the get-go. It's the drug Muhammad Ali took um, when he got Parkinson's. Um, It's it's the standard of treatment. Uh, Unfortunately, the effects of many of the Parkinson's drugs start to diminish over time. And so once they diminish you have to find something else, but there's lots of new drugs out there for part of, even, even since I've been diagnosed three years ago, even since then, um, there are lots of new drugs, but there are a lot of precursor symptoms. Um, people do, um, stumble a lot more. Um, I find that I have to be much more careful walking downstairs or upstairs, not upstairs, mostly walking downstairs, um, because I will stumble. Um, most Parkinson's patients, the thing that, that gets them in the end is is the stumbling and falling. Because most Parkinson's patients are older. I'm 72. Um, most of them are older. And one of the problems with old age is you fall. And you break your hip. I mean, our bones are really brittle at that point. You break your hip, you break your arm, whatever. And that starts kind of a downfall in your, in your life. It starts to... To make you more prone to, to dying eventually
0: okay and i've also read that alzheimer's is also ultimately fatal how does alzheimer's differ from parkinson's what is the difference between these two
1: well, alzheimer's is a mental disorder um your brain is let me back up a little bit alzheimer's is a brain disorder. Um, and the problem with Alzheimer's is that what happens is during the day when your brain is working, it doesn't use up all the molecules in the, the connection, the chemical connection between different axons and neurons. Um, and what it doesn't use, the little molecules that it doesn't use, are just thrown off into your brain and they just run around in your brain at night during the day the problem is is that if you don't get rid of those little things they clump together and the more they clump together the more the more problematic it they're called plaque and when they look at the brains of alzheimer's patients after they've passed away they have a lot of plaque in the brain the plaque basically disturbs their cognitive function it's like throwing a bunch of plastic in your brain all at the same time it just gets in the way and so Alzheimer's is a biochemical problem um, it doesn't necessarily use, require more dopamine what it requires is, is that you figure out how to get your brain flushed out and cleared out um, and we don't do a very good job of that um people just don't they don't, they don't get enough sleep it turns out sleep is really good for refurbishing and resetting your brain when you sleep, all those plaque, most of those plaques are flushed away out of your brain, down your spinal fluid, and out. Um, your brain also prunes things off that it doesn't need that anymore. Um, it enhances things that it thinks it does need. And so it's really active at night. It's um, kind of fixing your brain from the day before to the next day. Um, if, If, for example, we don't get enough rest or sleep, those things don't happen. And our brain just gets clouded with all this plaque and stuff. And so the the key right now is to find out how to keep people stimulated. Um, Keep people stimulated and then keep them getting a good restful sleep as best as they can. Mm.
0: So if I understood correctly, this cleaning happens in all ages.
1: Yep, It's actually, I often refer to it as um, kind of a bidet. In the sense that your spinal fluid you're you're, um at the top where the spine meets the brain it opens up just a little bit during the night and it allows that spinal fluid to come in run around your brain and flush out those pieces of plaque and those molecules and run them down your spinal fluid and get rid of them so it is a little bit like a bidet flush up flush down
0: and does this happen regardless of the way you're sleeping is it Dependent on your sleeping position, like if you're on your back or on your side.
1: No, um, it doesn't affect. It isn't affected by your um, by any position specifically. What it's affected by is your regularity of your sleeping. Bags. If you sleep five hours one night and eight hours to make up for it another day, um, that is not good um, because then your brain doesn't allow that spinal fluid to come in and completely wash out everything. So the key is just to try to find a good pattern of sleeping. Um, I I was terrible at this. All my life I was convinced I wasn't a sleeper. I'd sleep four, four and a half hours a night, feel right in there and ready to go the next day, and then I'd crash and burn on the weekend and sleep for 12 hours one day. Um, As soon as I read this research and looked at what we found in our sleep research about technology, um, I realized I had to make a change. And so now I go to bed roughly at exactly the same time, and I get up roughly at exactly the same time. And I do it the same way every
0: night. Mm. And so as this plaque builds up, what is the ultimate uh, cause of the, is this fatal? Does it lead to death or like a stroke as the, the plaque builds up in the brain? It can,
1: um, plaque can stop the blood flow from your brain, which is vital. Um, at, at the minimum, what it does is get gets in the way of your brain um, functioning um, and working through problems that come up during your day like walking from here to there mm-hmm. um, it, it gets in the way of that because the plaque kind of blocks the neurons from communicating. and so for example one of the effects long-term effects of that for example if you have if you're just a normal person you know in your normal old age uh, you would walk downstairs you'll open up the refrigerator and you can't remember what you were looking for I often will go downstairs, my wife will ask me something, I'll go downstairs, and I'll come back up and go, what did you ask me about, I totally forgot, and it's just downstairs, I mean, it's a small place. Mm -hmm. So, those are natural aging things. Alzheimer's is different. Alzheimer's is, your memory starts to go in a more serious way. You start to forget things, you forget people. Um, You can't pull their names out of your brain anymore, which is, again, it's hard to disentangle this from being just being old (laughs) because all of these things are similar. It's just that Alzheimer's has a much stronger effect on your your brain and your cognition.
0: And the motor movement is not uh, affected in Alzheimer's?
1: Mm, Not that I know of. It's more of a dopamine issue, and I don't think there's a lot of dopamine involved in Alzheimer's. I mean, again, it's, it's hard to disentangle all this because, again, aging, aging has the same issues. So I, uh, I think it, it always remains problematic, I think. But science, so science is um, moving very quickly. Now, I'm going to have to distract myself for one second.
0: That's okay. Um, because...
1: It was two to four. My wife texted me from upstairs to say, "Can you please okay. bring me a cup of coffee?" I said we'd be done soon.
0: <laughs> so then, yeah, that brings me then to the last two. Maybe have you got time for two fun questions to finish sure. up? Sure. Okay, so this is a question from my mum. Uh, when she heard I was speaking with you, she wanted to ask um, if we wake up tomorrow and the the internet is down for the whole world, how will we react? Will people be able to survive? We will We will survive. I'm on, the, I'm on a podcast, though.
1: So... <sighs> I guess you didn't get my text. Um, <laughs> if the internet was down everywhere, which is definitely a possibility. I mean, it's, it's not an impossibility to wipe out the electric grid in an area and lose the internet. Um, it revolves on electric signals. Um I think many, 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 many people would just be like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with myself. What am I gonna do? And again, those anxiety chemicals are gonna build up, build up. Um it's gonna happen much more to young kids. They won't know what to do. What do, what do I do about I the internet? I can't play my game. I can't do anything. Um I remember one time I was in Charlotte, I think North Carolina. Giving a speech, and there was a hurricane there, and so there was the hurricane shut off the electricity at the hotel I was staying in, and they um, they had these little lights, like backup lights in the hallways, and they had everybody in the room. There was a flashlight because obviously it happens a lot out there, and I had I had no phone. There was no phone. I mean, my phone didn't work. I had maybe 30 minutes of charge left on my phone. So I called, let people know what was going on, and I think I posted something someplace. And once that died out, I'm like, well, what do I do? I was reading a book on my phone. I don't have a book. Well, there's no lights to read a book by anyway. Um, And so I just had to figure out what to do with myself. I just went to sleep. That seemed to be the most most smartest thing to do at the moment
0: and the sleep uh, probably gave you some favors right you probably had a nice night's sleep with no distractions look, the mind uh working
1: before i went to sleep by the way i went down to the little restaurant and um they said the restaurant wasn't open of course because there was nothing there but the bar was open and they had to they had because they didn't want the, the beer to to get spoiled and get warm. They just were giving free
0: beers for everybody. <laughs> Which definitely helped my such sleep. a great way. <laughs> okay, and then final question then. I'm not sure, maybe you thought about this before uh, what would you say the meaning of life is?
1: Hmm. I think that the meaning of life um is for us to leave when we leave the earth, wherever we go, whatever happens, to have left a lasting impression on people, um, so that in the long run, people will remember you for the things you did, for the kind of person you were, um, and more of the kind of person you were than than what you did. I mean, I. I can imagine that one of the things when I pass away, one of the things that that my obituary, wherever it might be, is that I wrote seven books. Well, that's fine, but I'd much rather have it say, but I was grandfather to to X number of kids and and really loved them and played with them all the time and had a wife and, 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 you know, all those kind of things. So I really think that the meaning of life is what you leave on this earth for others to remember you by. Because in, in, in length of time, we're just here for a short spit right there. And life goes on. So my my goal is to leave good feelings with everybody.
0: That's uh, great. I completely agree. So thank you, uh, uh, Dr. Larry, for uh, agreeing to be on my podcast. I hope some people got some valuable advice to deal with this uh problem we're all facing with being distracted
1: well thank you for having me i appreciate it and it was a fun interview
0: thank you i will link all your articles hopefully you can send them over to me and then i'll put them in the link to the podcast where they can find your articles on psychology today well your blog posts
1: blog posts i on my website, there's a link for all the blog posts, there's a link for all the articles, that journal articles that I've ever done. And all you have to do is go to my website, click on research for the, all the journal articles, click on, um, I forget, uh, click on other things for for the what I write for um, psychology today. It's all right there, it's easy.
0: Simplicity. Great, perfect, I'll link it all. All right then, Larry, thanks a lot, have a great day. Thank you, take Bye-bye. care.